Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by one of our favorite Australian beauty brands, Banging Body. Banging Body is a multi-purpose skincare and body range. Can you tell all the people how you use your Banging Body? I use the firming lotion on my dimples, on my butt, because I'm getting summer ready. Yes, you are. It's filled with native Australian extracts and locally sourced botanical ingredients to enhance your natural glow. Use code CURIOUS10 for 10% off your order at bangingbody.com. Can I tell you a story about Banging Body later on? Hit me. Welcome to Curious Conversations with Tully and Sarah. We sit down and chat with business owners, entrepreneurs, and some of the best conversation starters. This is a podcast about real life lessons and people doing cool shit. Welcome back and happy Wednesday. We hope you're all well. And if you're outside of Melbourne, we hope you're enjoying your freedom. This week's conversation, the girls don't really need any intro if you've been listening to podcasts. They are two of the OG podcasters and still bloody young too, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald from Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who like dumb stuff. At 26, I think I was still trying to get my life together, but these two ladies have their own podcast, own media company, and now they're authors of the book, The Space Between which we like to think as a Bible and a therapy session for people trying to navigate their 20s. The book talks love, loss, ambition, work, mind, body and more. The girls open up about absolutely everything. We talk about working with your best friend, life in Melbourne lockdown and launching a book during a pandemic, which is available now from all good bookstores. I'm sure if you Google the space between, it'll pop up. Enjoy. Don't forget to like, subscribe. And, and tell all your friends. And share all your friends. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Curious Conversations. Happy Wednesday. So today we are excited. I'm slash nervous and excited. We have Zara and Michelle from that bloody popular podcast, Shameless, who have just launched a book called The Space Between. Welcome. How are you? Hi, guys. Hey. We're good. Don't be nervous. I um, We actually get nervous before every In Conversation episode as well, and it always really? seems to go totally fine. So <laughs> yeah, we are. you're amongst friends. <laughs> you're amongst nervous friends for sure. <laughs> Thank you. That makes me feel so much. But I feel like if you get nervous, you're doing something right. So that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, I definitely 100%. agree with that. Uh we're all Melburnians here, and I just want to first off, how are you guys? Ooh, I mean, struggling. It would be a lie to say that I'm doing incredibly and that like everything's totally fine. Um, it's just hard, right? I think with second lockdown, it's really different to the first lockdown in that we don't have a clear date. I feel like with the first lockdown, it was really great working towards something. And I know that people could say, oh, but October 26 or 28 or whatever it's supposed to be is the date. But we've had two dates before that that never eventuated. So I'm not really hanging on to a number anymore or like a timeline of when this is all going to finish because I've been disappointed as every Melbourneian has again and again. So I think that's the hard thing, not really knowing or having a good indication of when it will all kind of go back to normal. 
And I think the other thing, I read this really interesting thing on Twitter the other day where someone was saying that like they aren't fully able to recharge on weekends because you're kind of, you know, I don't know what it is, but I don't find weekends particularly relaxing. I find that's when my mind is more in overdrive at the moment and I'm enjoying the weeks far more because we're working and we're busy and Mm. you feel like you're productive and doing something. And then the weekends roll around and you just feel a little bit burnt out, I think. And I feel I'm finding myself so much worse at responding to messages and keeping in contact with people because I think everything feels like it takes so much more energy, which seems so weird, I think, if you're not in this and haven't been in this for as long as we all have. But um, I am, I'm finding the weeks wonderful, like being able to do this stuff with you guys and kind of spend our day doing this is awesome because you feel like you're having social contact, but the weekends are a bit of a slog. Mm. I agree. I find weekends a massive struggle at the moment. I feel like it may be the thing that you like not really a routine and you're not staying stimulated. Yeah. A struggle. You guys have partners, don't you? Yeah, we do. Yeah. And they're great. Like it's been so good to have Mitch, my boyfriend. We also got a dog in isolation. We got a puppy in May. So that's been amazing as well, being able to train Benji and have him around like a little bundle of happy fluff every single morning. <laughs> um But it's hard, right? Like when you live in an apartment and you're both working and you're both doing meetings and interviews and whatever, like Mitch is now like confined to our study because he can't come out because like we have to work in different spaces and we've got like conflicting things all the time. So um, it's great to have them though. I feel extreme sympathy for anyone who went through this that is a single person household. Like we had so many shameless listeners reach out to us, particularly over the last two months to tell us what it's like living alone and how isolating and lonely, of course, that experience is. And I just cannot imagine going through this and being them. Like it's one thing to have a partner and just see them all the time and not really have much other social interaction. But to just kind of see the supermarket checkout assistant or to see the person at the pharmacy or the greengrocer and not see anyone else would be so Friggin' difficult. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Yeah, no, <laughs> so fucking difficult. <laughs> so yeah, that's been my main thing that I'm really happy to have Mitch and I feel extreme sympathy for anyone who doesn't have that significant other right now. Yeah, I moved in with my partner in the middle of lockdown. So it's been um, oh, <laughs> baptism, so baptism by fire in terms of living together. Yeah. But you, you, are, you can't escape each other. Like it is not the normal situation <laughs> where you move in together. But um, I'm the same as Mish. Like having just one person, even yeah. if it's the same person, has just been like crucial to keeping me sane. Yeah. You guys have such a voice on platform, on social media. Have you used that at all for political views? Mm, I mean... This is a really interesting one. I feel like at the beginning of lockdown, we were talking a lot about the importance of wearing a mask or the importance of being really compassionate and kind of like pushing everyone to keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. But I think the longer it's gone on, we've probably just let people feel however they want to feel. Like I personally, um, in my family, I have a really broad spectrum of how people are reacting to this, where they stand politically on it. And Zara and I are very vocal about our political views, that we are left-leaning and that we generally do really trust governments and we do believe that governments have the interests of the people at heart. Certain governments. Certain (laughs) governments, yeah. But I think in general, I think we've kind of pulled away from that because I think there's so much emotion and people are so rightly angry and so rightly frustrated for so many different things and at so many different people or institutions. We've just kind of our one message over the last few weeks has been like, we hope you're okay. We hope you're being kind to yourself and we hope you're being kind to other people. Because I think when we're all so sleep deprived and stressed and worn out, we all get a bit angsty with each other and we just don't want to put that out into the world. Yeah, that's true. And Michelle, you've also had to deal with the other traumatic 
uh, oh. event in the last week and a half, the Kardashians being at. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The funny I thing is, is that I, I literally like turned to the Kardashians in lockdown. I think it might have been the first time I went through and watched every single season. I skipped oh. an episode here and there. You know how they have like a filler episode every yeah. season? where it's just like a scripted storyline between Scott and Chloe. Like I tend yeah. to skip those ones. Um, but I was devastated. Like I, couldn't, I, I can believe it. I was about to say I couldn't believe it's been cancelled. I can believe it's been cancelled. But I am like a diehard Keeping Up With The Kardashians fan. I love watching those episodes. They're such a good way to pass time. So Zara is the opposite to me. Zara couldn't give less fucks. <laughs> no, I couldn't really give a shit. But I do appreciate the need for like really mind-numbing TV at this time. Like I have yeah. dumped on the Selling Sunset bandwagon. Oh, <laughs> like especially last night I was feeling so dead. And, you know, when you're just sitting in front of the TV and like we couldn't work out what the hell to watch. So we just put it on and kind of like half sat on our phones, half sat watching yeah. the television. <laughs> and we're just like laughing at the ridiculousness of it. But I think... God, you so need shows like that just oh, to be yeah. able to like switch off completely. It's um, almost mindful. Yeah, it is. It really is. I'm hoping that Chris Jenner joins the Housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh, I, I need to get on that show, I think. Oh. Not actually physically on it. I mean, I need to get on the bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a five-year word. Yeah. Five yeah. years. <laughs> um, I want to go back to like obviously COVID and the pandemic and just business. Hmm. We run a business. A lot of people have had to learn to pivot. Now, you guys are obviously self-employed. A lot of people probably don't think that, you know, you record at home or well, you're recording at home. But hmm. have you guys had to pivot at all during this time like everyone else? Oh, God, yeah. I think I remember when the, I think it was March, there was a certain week in March where everything started to fall apart and we were a bit like, oh, fuck, you know, you start realising that sponsors want to pull episodes because everyone was in stress. People were just uncertain and it was that sense of uncertainty. People didn't know how their businesses were going to react to this, which meant people were pulling money left, right and centre. So we we definitely noticed that at the start and we thought we're really going to have to get creative with regards to what kinds of sponsors we're reaching out to because who really does thrive in this kind of you know, era and pandemic and certain businesses do thrive. So we had to reach out to them actively to try and get sponsorships because that's how the business functions. That's how we're able to stay employed and employ our team members. So there was that. And then the other issue genuinely is how do we make good content in this time where none of us can be in the same room? Like that was the, the key focus for us you know, for a month or two trying to work out how we could have really engaging, genuine conversations when you're reliant on an internet connection that sometimes doesn't really back you because the internet, like our internet connections have been the biggest barrier to us actually being able to do this. We have done, I mean, we've worked out how to have um, interviews and in conversations be done remotely, but the amount of times our video chat just collapses and we've had to kind of do them in three different installments and you feel so embarrassed on behalf of a guest. You guys would know, mm-hmm. imagine if it's yeah. just sort of like shut down three or four times. Um, and it's awkward, but I think people are generally a bit more patient. Like definitely the guests we've had on are far more patient at the moment because technology's a bit of a bitch in this sort of yeah. setup. Yeah. I think as well, like there were probably also a few weeks that we weren't putting out the best work. And I feel like that would be everyone in lockdown. They'd be thinking, well, we're in a new scenario. Our working circumstances have changed and I'm not getting the best out of myself. I don't think anyone was getting the best out of themselves professionally between mid-March and mid-April. The awkward thing about our job is that it's completely public. So when your job's not, when you're not performing your absolute best, everyone's still consuming that. So I think that was a real struggle for us kind of figuring out in this weird time what kind of content did we want to put out and what kind of episodes were we curating and 
when you're having a pandemic, there's very little pop culture and celebrity news going on. And then do you want to talk about the pandemic when you kind of want to be the distraction for everyone who wants to get away from that because they're just flooded with pandemic content anyway? So I think it really did take us three or four weeks to kind of settle into our groove and figure out what kind of show we wanted to put together twice a week, every week. And I'm really happy now. If anything, I'm really incredibly proud of the team that we have at Shameless kind of finding our footing and really feeling confident now that every show we put out, I'm really proud of, um, which is important to us because it wasn't easy and it was very like kind of hard figuring out what the fuck to talk about every week for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you guys have got such an amazing platform for all of us, especially Melburnians, to like forget about what is going on in the world (laughs) at the moment. So it's amazing. We didn't really want to talk too much about Shameless, the podcast, because everyone knows about it, but obviously it's part of your story as well. So you guys were obviously writers at Mamma Mia. So how did Shameless come apart if people are listening that don't know your story? Yeah, so Mish and I were working together at Mamma Mia. We were about 22 or 23 when we met, probably younger actually, 21 Mm, or 22. 21, I think. Yeah, and we were kind of the youngest ones in the office and probably the two that had the most in common with regards to our interests and things like that. So we would find ourselves in this open plan office having like very loud, obnoxious (laughs) debates about The Bachelor or whatever is happening in pop culture. And I remember one day uh, the head of podcasts sort of like stood up behind her desk and was like, you two need to get in a studio together. Like we need to try and like hash this out. So we started on a very tiny, very silly bachelor podcast, a bachelor recap podcast for Mamma Mia. And we did that for a little bit and we really fell in love with podcasting. But I think more than that, we fell in love with the fact that podcasting was a skill we were going to be able to hopefully teach ourselves because I don't know, we were a bit stressed about our job prospects with only writing in our kind of repertoire. There is not many jobs for journalists out there, particularly in Melbourne. So we thought we need to get into this kind of podcasting sphere. And we just went back and forth with each other being like, there's a huge gap in the market here for having really smart conversations or what we hope are smart conversations (laughs) about celebrity and pop culture. Like nobody kind of treats women's interests like pop culture interests or, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians as something that's really legitimate and something that can be unpacked in a pretty clever way. I think the the interests that we have, particularly when it comes to pop culture and celebrity, say so much about us and what we're interested in and trends. And we, yeah, we just decided that there was a huge gap in the market that we were going to try and fill. So we tried to fill it. Originally, we pitched it to Mamma Mia!, They didn't take it on board. So we grabbed the idea as fast as we could. And we said to them, do you mind if we produce this on the weekends outside of our jobs? And they said that was fine. So we did. And then, you know, it took about six weeks for us to kind of, six to eight weeks, I think, for us to leave our jobs and really pursue it properly. Eight weeks. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of got to the point, to be honest, where we accidentally, we we created this podcast. I think it was about eight weeks, Mish. Yeah, I think it was maybe eight weeks we figured out that we probably needed to pursue the podcast. I think it was 10 weeks. At the 10-week mark, we actually got up the courage to quit yeah. and walk away. Because I think, I think we'd been doing it for about a month or two where I realised I needed to start applying for other jobs very quickly because we'd accidentally birthed a competitor podcast, to be yeah. totally honest with you. Like we had created a podcast for Australian women when we were already working at Australian's biggest podcast network for women. Like it was, yeah. it was a bit odd. So um, I jumped to another job, Mish jumped to freelancing and we started to, to really push it. But no one was listening at that point. Like it wasn't big. We didn't make the jump because we had a huge audience. We just oh. kind of, we backed it. That's the thing. I think when we say 
that we left our jobs 10 weeks in, people are like, oh my God, it must have been huge <laughs> after 10 weeks. It was not. I think we had maybe like a thousand or two thousand listeners an episode. We didn't we like never had a sponsor. We were making no money from it. In fact, we were like kind of pouring the very little money we had at the time into the podcast. So it was just kind of a hunch that we had that it was going to work. And I'm really happy we acted on that hunch because it ended up being the best decision we could have made. Yeah. This is a question we get asked often because being very close friends and working together, how do you guys go together working and your friendship is so close? Oh, I love working with Zara. I can't imagine working this closely and this intimately with anyone else in my life. I think what was really key to our dynamic was that we met at work. So we've always worked together and we always had that professional relationship before we developed this really tight bond as friends. And I think having that foundation, like not meeting socially and then trying to make it more professional meant that we've always been really honest with each other. We've always been really used to kind of sitting in meetings and thrashing things out and disagreeing and figuring out where the middle point is or who feels more passionately about something. Or So that's been great for us. And I think now as friends and as kind of co-founders of the very small media company that we run, we talk all day, every day. I think people probably don't realize that like all day, every day from 7am in the morning until like 10 o'clock at night, we are texting back and forth, whether it's about work or it's about something funny we saw on Instagram or I don't know, it was something that a mutual friend said or did. So yeah, we are incredibly, incredibly close and I definitely can't see myself having this kind of dynamic with anyone else in my life. I think the other thing is the reason that we worked so well together when we first met and the reason initially I think that the podcast team at Mamma Mia wanted to put us in a studio is because we were always disagreeing about stuff. Yeah. We had the same interests, but we were continuously thrashing things out because we didn't agree. And I think when your foundation is like this respectful debate, like when you have respectful debate at your foundation, you will end up probably working together very, very well because you have to be really honest, but very respectful at the same time, which is why we've kind of been able to build on it. At the start, did you guys both struggle with being so honest and vulnerable or it's something that comes naturally to you? Um, I mean, as far as being honest with each other, I think it probably took a little bit of time to really settle into the fact that even if we disagree on something really vehemently, it's going to be okay. I remember in our first year of doing the podcast, we would have some quite heated disagreements on mic and then we would need some like time out from each other where we literally had to sit back from our seats and like not look at each other and not talk to each other for like 10 minutes just to settle down and it's so funny thinking back to that and thinking how we almost needed to go through that teething process to figure out like where the line is or like to figure out the fact that no matter what we disagree on and no matter what we say when we're debating something it's never personal it's just that we have a, a simple difference of opinion. Um, But I think it's something for every business partner. I think naturally you're going to disagree on things and I'd be really worried if I was in a business or if I was working with someone who always agreed with me because to be blunt, I have some really terrible ideas and Zara will always tell me when she doesn't agree with one of my ideas and I think we need to do that for each other. Otherwise, you're going to always go down one path without ever questioning if there's a better way to do things. Yeah, it's true. No, I was going oh, to go. Do you feel the pressure to be more outspoken on topics? Um, I don't think we feel much pressure to do much, to be honest. We're just very naturally outspoken anyway. <laughs> like I think it would take a lot to 
to shut us up. I think we're pretty passionate people generally. And I know that we are in this job because we want to, yes, talk about things that are silly and frivolous, but also because there are some really important conversations to be had. And we're very conscious of the platform we have and the audience size that we have. And I think with that comes a responsibility to do some good with it. And that occasionally does mean having to be outspoken about things that we deem or that we think matters. So I don't ever feel like it's external pressure. I'd say it's more internal pressure between us to feel like we're serving our audience because they come to us every week and, and we are so um, so wary of the responsibility we have to them. Yeah. Now we're going to move to why we're talking to you guys today. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have just launched the book, The Space Between. Now, honestly, I feel like this is one book that not even every girl in their 20s, but every woman should read to help navigate their life. But you guys obviously launched a book during a pandemic Mm. and stage four lockdown. Tell me about that and how are you feeling? And you obviously can't go on book tours and stuff like that. Tell us how that is. Well, that's the funny thing. You guys asked us earlier, how have you had to kind of adapt and pivot as a business in COVID times? And we didn't even think of the book. Like with the book, the plan was we were going to do basically an Australia-wide tour. We were going to do Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, Sydney, Brisbane, Canberra, potentially looking at maybe going to New Zealand as well. Like we were thinking the bigger, the better for this book tour. And it was the one thing in 2020 where like we are definitely doing a a national tour, sorry, and we are definitely going to put everything we can into promoting this book. So to go from that level of thinking and that kind of scale to going, okay, we are launching this book and we can't even be in the same room. Like we have to be completely separate and we have to just figure it the fuck out. I mean... It's not the ideal scenario, but I think one thing I'm really happy that Zara and I do and happy that we have a like is that we don't kind of dwell on things, that as soon as we found out that the book tour wouldn't be happening, it wasn't something that I felt super sad about. It wasn't something that I spent any real emotional energy on. If we can't control it, we can't control it. So we basically just switched our mindset to, okay, well, what can we do? Like, let's involve the listeners and create a promotional video on our IGTV and we'll work with a videographer to put that out. Let's do Zoom events and let's, I don't know, do collaborations with brands and do um, Instagram crossovers and stuff like that. So I think as much as it's not the ideal scenario, it's still been a lot of fun. Like I still Mm. love chatting to people. I love doing interviews like this. It's not all that bad. I mean, some mornings we have to wake up and do interviews at 7am, but at least I can get out of bed at 6.50 and do that interview instead (laughs) of having to wake up at 5am, get ready and leave the house. So it's kind of crazy that we had all this stuff planned but now we're doing stuff from our house and I'm still really tired and still feel like our plate's really full. I almost can't imagine doing what we're doing and being on tour at the same time. It would just be an insane workload. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's one thing I've been kind of grateful for is we felt kind of strung out and overwhelmed and we still aren't leaving our homes. Like it's a strange thing to admit feeling busy but you're not actually physically moving anywhere. Um, I think the other thing that has been interesting about releasing a book is there are two things that we found earlier this year. First, a lot of people looked at us when it came to Shameless and thought, well, you guys must be fine. Podcast listeners, podcast downloads and listens would be skyrocketing. But we found ours plateauing because nobody was commuting. And so that was a huge form of stress for us because we were like, people just aren't listening to podcasts. Podcasts are not increasing in downloads. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes for book sales, to be totally frank with you. 
the mm. conversations and the stuff we were reading is that people weren't buying books because people weren't reading. Mm. And I think it, it probably harks back to the point that I made at the very start about this is when I'm on my weekends, I'm kind of bored and burnt out, but I don't do anything productive with them. Yeah. Like I don't really sit down and read for three hours because I just don't feel like I can be fucked and it doesn't really make sense. So book sales weren't doing very well either. So for us, it's been really interesting trying to drop this book in a time and try to push people to buying a book when everyone in Melbourne, which is, you know, our core demo is in Melbourne because we are from Melbourne, can't even go to a bookshop and see it and pick it up. So that's been a weird thing as a business to try and make sense of. And I guess you'll never really know what the difference would be if you launch it outside a pandemic or in a pandemic. But all I know is that when something when we're faced with some sort of hurdle in our business, I do find that it's when we often do our best work because mm. we have to think really creatively and we have to sharpen our swords. Like you just have no choice but to make it work. So we probably don't rest in our laurels because of that hurdle. Yeah. And looking back now, it's kind of like, uh, I think we were really stressed about downloads in June in particular when Melbourne was going back into stage three, back into stage four. But I'm really stoked now because I think sharpening our swords made us problem solve really well. And I think that's been one skill that we've honed this year, thank goodness, because maybe we were lacking in that beforehand. But when you have no other option other than to problem solve, you get quite good at it. So it's been great in that we've been able to kind of find ways to get into people's ears and to have them kind of develop a shameless ritual, even if they're in lockdown. And so like, it was so great to see the downloads come back up again and sell books that we're really proud of. Like we didn't really have a number in our head um, as to what would be success for the book, but we are really stoked with how many people seem to be buying it and seem to be enjoying it. And the number one thing for us is that people read this book and think, I need to give this to my sister or my best friend or my cousin. So to hear you guys say, oh, women should read this, like everyone could pick it up and take something away. That's like the biggest compliment to us because we want it to be something that's shared. Even if you don't buy the book, like I don't care if one book is bought and it's passed around a group of 10 different women. That is success to us, feeling like people want to share it between each other and have conversations about what's in it. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. I actually had dinner with a friend last night and we were talking about how we want to get into like more kindness and giving back to people. And I Mm -hmm. think it's such a like for you giving something to someone, you know, it's going to help them is such a good feeling, but also receiving that is also a good feeling. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of cool. Do you know how I wanted to tell you a story before about Banging Body? I've been hanging for this all episode. (laughs) I got influenced by the influencers, right? I hope it was me. (laughs) And you know I'm a, I'm a basic girl. I'm easygoing. 100%. I, I bought the firming lotion, right? The multi-purpose firming lotion. Yes. And I messaged one of our friends and I was like, is this the one that you can use on your body and your face? And she was like, yes. And so I started using it on my face. And even the other day, my mum goes, geez, Sarah, your face looks really good. At Banging Body. Yes. Yes, I love that. <laughs> so if you want to look like me, guys, you use the code CURIOUS10 at checkout at bangingbody.com. So you guys obviously had the Shameless podcast. How did it come about to writing a book on four sections of love, ambition, mind and body and voice? Why a book? <laughs> I think we started to have conversations on the podcasts and a few other podcasts that we were producing that was, weren't strictly like pop culture or news related, but mm-hmm. were very much related to the experience of, you know, our 20s and personal experiences that we had gone through. And I mean, Mish and I are writers by trade, and I think it's probably the thing we love doing the most. And so we knew we wanted to write a book and we started hashing it out. And I remember saying to Michelle a while ago, like, 
the first book we do is obviously together. Like it's obviously something we pour into together and we started sort of bouncing off ideas about what that would even look like and how that would even function because co-writing a book is a pretty unique experience. And it was like a week or two later that we just had a random email fall into our inbox from Izzy, who is an editor at Penguin. And she said, hey guys, really love your podcast. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And then after that, it was really strange timing that we had a few offers in the same sort of space of a a month. And it just must be how publishers operate, I guess. They kind of all have a similar thing in mind as to like what would make an okay book. So we had that fall into our laps and we were like, this is pretty crazy timing considering this is only a conversation that we started to have. But I guess it came down to the fact that these were conversations we wanted to have, but we didn't want to have them on the podcast. And we also didn't think that they fit necessarily in a podcast. So yeah, we thought it was a pretty natural extension of what we were already doing, but it kind of let us write. And it's a pretty self-indulgent and lovely thing to do when you love to write. Yeah. And for the people listening who don't know what the book is actually about, do you write from your own personal experiences in the Mm -hmm. book? So yeah, it's a lot of personal experiences. It's kind of a collection of essays and every essay is either written by Zara or myself. We never collaborate on like a long piece essay together because they're so experience focused. Like if I'm going to write about anxiety, Zara probably can't come in and add much on that. (laughs) She doesn't have it. Whereas if she's writing about her endometriosis, I have nothing to say. So we kind of thought, okay, separate out the essays. They're all written individually. It's always really clear who's written what. But then we collaborated on things like listicles and email chains and like fun little creative pieces throughout the book that we wrote together. So I feel like that was such a fun hybrid to kind of write our bits separately and look at the book and think, okay, what different experiences do we really want to bring into this? Like, what have I gone through that would be helpful to people? What has Zara gone through that would make people feel a little bit less alone? Let's talk about that stuff. But then let's bring some of the more like fun, universal experiences and more of the like silly, ridiculous stuff and work on that together and put that in between the essays. Because one thing for me is number one, I don't like reading books of essays. Like I'll put my hand up and say that point blank, don't enjoy it, find it to be quite a dry, boring experience because it's just quite like, it almost feels like university work sometimes, reading essay after essay. So with this, we're like, let's make them personal so they're really warm and engaging and honest. Like we want to be honest and generous with our listeners, but also let's put fun, stupid shit like shit between it so that someone doesn't lose concentration or feel like it's dragging. Yeah. It's like, I actually think it's like a Bible for women. What, <laughs> literally, but like, what would you, what's your favorite section of the book for both of you? Oh, um, I probably will always love writing about love and that's not necessarily romantic love at all. Like we don't touch hugely on romantic love. I think the first two essays of the book are about romantic love and then the rest is about love between friends and between family and between sisters and I think I'll forever love writing about that because I I like observing relationships and I think that no matter the nature of your relationships, I think it's stuff that people always have in common. Like when it comes to ambition, people have different ideas about what ambition looks like and what career looks like and where their priorities lie. But there's something about writing about relationships where you can kind of write a little bit more universally. So Mm. I don't think I'll ever be able to go past that one. Mm, I agree. I think love was my favorite section, but if we wanted to be more specific, I would say my f- the first and the last essays are my favorite. So Zara's first essay is the space between heartbreak and healing. And I thought that is just such a beautiful piece. Like from the first time I read that story to the 
essay that is now in the book, obviously it goes through different versions and through diff- different redrafts. It is like m- one of my favourite pieces of writing of Zara's ever. And then the last essay was really important to me to include and I feel like those two pieces were really seminal to our 20s. So I'm happy we opened the book on one and closed the book on the other. Yeah. Tally and I were talking about the book before and I said there's a, a certain topic that Tully will really be able to identify with and it was with you, Zara, when you were saying identifying yourself and work and trying to split the two yeah I think Tally's really struggled with too yeah I struggle with a lot (laughs) it's really interesting because I I kind of found myself particularly in the thick of writing that story so it was sort of in the middle of last year when you know the world was way more normal than it is now and you're kind of trying to juggle having a social life and working and trying to work out which identity is the most important and which identity you're nurturing the most and how to split that and I kind of had this overwhelming sense that I was just letting people down left right and center because I wanted to give most of myself over to my job Mm -hmm. and I I couldn't work out why why I felt so much guilt about that. And I felt so much guilt because I was like, I feel like I'm doing it all wrong. Like when you die, no one says she was really good at her job. They say like she was a really nice person or a really great friend. And yet while my social life was always a priority and being a good person and, and friend and sister and daughter is a good priority, is a priority. My, my job was just number one and it still kind of is. And kind of wrestling with those two things was a really kind of cathartic experience because I got to the end and I was like, the the women that I've spoken to who kind of spent a lot of their time in their 20s working don't regret that. And if this is the thing that I want to choose to do, then this is the thing that I want to choose to do. Who says that is wrong in the same way that another person not giving themselves to their to their jobs in their 20s is wrong too? Like I think I think especially when we're young, we can be stuck in this mindset that we're doing everything wrong, that that we're not doing anything right and we're kind of putting our energy in all the wrong buckets. But I've kind of definitely made peace with that because I had the opportunity to spend so much time writing about it and kind of making sense of it. Yeah. Now, you guys are 26 years years old. Still baby, I know. (laughs) Jesus. Do you think when you get to the end of your 20s, you're going to rewrite? like (laughs) We should, shouldn't we? I think you should. Every every decade, my um my little sister said that to me. She's like, I want you guys in ten years time to like re-release the book, but with annotations on yes. everything you now disagree with or like what you've learned <laughs> beyond so that. Good. Uh, which is a really funny idea. I mean, I think we'll always have ideas on this type of stuff that we'll always want to like come back to and revisit. And hopefully, there is another book that Zara and I can write down the track. But as far as the space between goes. I love that it captures a certain essence of your yeah. 20s. I, I know that not everyone has anything figured out at any age, but I do feel like once you hit your later 20s or your early 30s, you probably do look back at your early 20s and have some of those crisis questions figured out or you have like a clearer answer in your head as to why you went through things or why you're feeling a certain way or um, I don't know, like you kind of have more remedies for the loneliness that you feel in your very, very early 20s. Whereas... The space between is all about kind of capturing that feeling and sitting in it and letting people know they're not alone in feeling however they feel. And so that's something I'm really proud of. Like I'm really happy that we wrote this book at 25 and released it at 26 because even now, a year later, I would probably read stuff in this book and be like, oh, I feel differently about that because we all change with every Mm -hmm. single year in our 20s. But 
I think and I hope that it speaks to a certain kind of woman who is stuck and who doesn't know what the answers are and who doesn't know where she wants to go next but also feels okay in that. Like it's okay not to know or to not have all the answers and that's why this is certainly not a self-help book. It's just a book to help women feel seen and heard. Yeah, I feel like it's a perfect time to read a book like The Space in Between. Yeah. The Space Between. And it's definitely a conversation starter. Like fertility, Tully and I started talking about fertility before because of the book. And it's something I I don't openly talk about with my friends because I I don't personally know if I want children and I feel like a lot of people will judge me for that. Yeah. Mm. I think that's a really good point. I think because when it comes to writing about fertility and what I wanted to write in that essay was that like, I don't have the words to talk about the fact that mm-hmm. I don't know what my fertility is going to look like in five or 10 years because I do have endometriosis and, and chronic health issues. And I'd never been given permission to say to say anything aloud. And I also didn't have the words for it because no conversations really existed. Like yeah. I didn't have the info. I, don't, I still don't really. And I think that's kind of the biggest blight on conversations around women's health because I was like, I don't actually know what to say. So it took me a very long time to pen it down because as you say, it's not really something I've spoken to my friends about because it just doesn't come up. Like the conversation of fertility and kids in women doesn't really seem to come up until people decide that they want to have kids and they're starting to try. But what about the lead up to that when people are still kind of stressed about what their fertility will look like or worry that they don't want kids? And as you say, Sarah, people might judge you for that. Like, why aren't we talking about that a bit earlier? It just kind of feels like we need to, to cross a certain threshold before we're allowed to have a conversation about it. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree too. Um, I want to go to the friendship um, section because I know in my 20s I soon realised there were a lot of friendships that I had that were not um, giving me, you know, joy or anything Mm. like that. How Mm. would you tell someone, you know, how to deal with a toxic relationship and because you know going from high school and stuff like that you kind of have friendships that you think are going to be there forever and then you do outgrow them what would your advice be um and what you've written in the book to someone that's dealing with that my advice would be to think about your friendships in a similar way to how you think about a romantic partner. I feel like so many of our conversations around romantic partners are really serious and we have deal breakers and we have articles about green flags and yellow flags and red flags. Like I remember working at Mamma Mia, we wrote so many articles about the green flags are in a healthy relationship or the red flags are in an unhealthy one. And they were always, always about romantic partners. But in reality, I feel like your romantic relationship and your friendships and your familial relationships and whatever all play a role in who you are as a person. They all play a role in your happiness and there's no one person that can make you happy. And so I feel like as much as we pour all of this energy into focusing on romantic relationships, and that's a good thing because we want to be in really healthy ones, we need to be thinking more carefully about the kinds of friends we're surrounding ourselves with. They very much subscribe to the idea that you are kind of a reflection of the five people that are closest to you. And I really think it was a big lesson for me in my early 20s, realizing that you should be thinking carefully and you should be thinking, what are my friendship deal breakers? And a huge one for me that I learned quite early on was, do they make me feel small and do they make me feel bad when I achieve something? I feel like that's a really big thing with toxic friends. It's something good happens in your life and you're made to feel guilty for it or you're made to feel like you shouldn't speak about it or you're made to feel small because of it. Yeah. And so that would be my main thing. Start thinking about your friends and being more selective. Just because you were kind of smooshed together in high school and you had that proximity, does that mean you should still be friends as adults? I don't think so. Yeah, 
think that's a good answer. I know you guys say this isn't a self-help book, but I feel like it is like a free therapy session yeah. <laughs> for the readers. Yeah. Probably because we went through so much sort of like so many psych appointments and therapy yeah. as we were writing it. So we just <laughs> yeah. sort of like, it's all just regurgitated yeah. thoughts. Yeah. 100%. yeah, I agree. So talking about how do you guys like keep your mental health healthy? Like do you mm. see psychologists and stuff like that or how do you, it's such a massive topic that I think everyone should talk about do you meditate yeah do you meditate do you work out like what's your deal <laughs> I want to be a meditator is that even a <laughs> verb I want to <laughs> I want to meditate I want to be someone that sits and does it I don't I do see a psychologist but that's a pretty yeah. I mean relatively Normal. fresh thing yeah. for me it was probably the last maybe six to eight months that I started seeing one and I started seeing one for my mental health because my physical health was suffering so much yeah and um because I was dealing with a lot of pain and a lot of chronic health issues my mental health started to struggle because of it. And I think we probably don't talk enough about the, the, the link between, you know, stress and your body. So that's when mm-hmm. I started seeing someone and I started exercising a lot more because my mental health was very contingent on how my body was. And if my body was in pain, then I was getting more and more stressed. So mm-hmm. I started to do those two things to look after my body and my mind. A huge one for me has been exercise. I mean, I've seen a psychologist for almost four years now. So I think psychologists are just made out of gold. And I, again, I also think it's important to find a good relationship with a good psychologist. I think you kind of need to date around and find the right one for you because not it's not like a one-size-fits-all approach either for a psych. But exercise is a huge one for me. That's actually been a struggle in lockdown in that I haven't been able to go to the gym. I love going to the gym. I know that is a deeply unlikable thing to say because I sound like I take myself too seriously. But I love the routine of going to the gym with my boyfriend and um, making dinner afterwards. And we always go at nighttime. And that's something that has always been like a constant for us that we probably go four or five times a week. So not having that has probably hindered my mental health a little bit in that I genuinely don't like running. I don't enjoy many of the forms of exercise that I can kind of do from home. So I can't wait for gyms to open back up whenever they're ready, whenever the Victorian government is keen to do it. I'm so excited when it's safe, of course, for people to start going again. Uh, But also mindfulness. I wish I was more on top of doing mindfulness every single day. When I am going through a bad mental health patch, though, I definitely kick up my mindfulness routine and I try and do it every single day. Like the Smiling Mind app is incredible and I recommend it to everyone because it's free and it's just such a good resource. So, yeah, I mean, it's like a whole host of things, even eating healthily. Like I went on a a bit of a healthy eating kick this year or sorry, this second lockdown because in the first lockdown, I think I was a bit sad and sorry for myself and I was just eating all the junk food under the sun. And as much as that made me feel comforted in the moment, I think it was actually detrimental to my mental health overall and so this time around my boyfriend and I have been really on top of eating healthily and that's been really important to me because it also gives me a bit of a sense of fulfillment that I'm taking care of my body which means hopefully in the long run I'm taking care of my mind as well. Also when I say that like I wish I was you know more into meditation I also think that people like meditation and mindfulness looks very different for a lot of people so for me actually properly being invested in a book, I find very mindful, like making sure my phone is in another room and and like, you know, just focusing on the book, I find an incredible kind of act of mindfulness and also running. I find that very mindful because I spend the whole time just thinking about how much I don't want to be there. And that's literally <laughs> the only thing on my mind. Exactly. I find running, I struggle so much with running, but I found it, I hate it, but I found it to be very like relaxing and mindful, mindful, mindful. No, <laughs> mindful. <laughs> I was like, I'm the same because I'm like concentrating on when the next like 
one kilometers done. Yeah. Stuff like that. Where do you guys see yourselves in the next five years? Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Every time we get asked this question, we have the same answer because we don't know. Like we genuinely <laughs> don't know. We genuinely, genuinely don't think about it. Even if you asked me, where do you guys see yourself in five months? I wouldn't have a very clear answer for you. And that's something that's really important to Zara and I, because we so far in our careers have not tried to like fill our plate up too far in advance. Mm -hmm. And when we have done that, we've felt like we've kind of missed opportunities or we've had our blinkers on um, and we haven't been able to be as like agile and as adaptive as we would have liked. So for now, it's been really working for us to just openly admit we don't know like we're just kind of taking things as it comes and we're just working on things as they pop up and I think our job is so contingent on being creative and having ideas so we kind of need to give ourselves that mental and energetic space to think of new stuff and actually like follow the path that we think will be the next successful thing for a business or for us individually. And I love not having a plan, which is would probably surprise me if I had have said that two or three years ago because I am quite a planner and I like kind of kind of knowing or being able to control things, I guess. But I always want to be, I always want us to be a business that doesn't really have a plan longer than the kind of next two or three months, I think, because <laughs> as Mish said, we've got to be agile. Like we have to be really agile in responding to what's going on in the world. Um, so I hope, I hope that I'm surprised. Like I hope that when at five years comes and we kind of hit that thing, I hope that I'm surprised about where we are because yeah. I think that will probably be a good thing. It means we're taking opportunities as they come. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Hal, in Melbourne at the moment, we can't even plan for tomorrow. I know. Exactly. <laughs> Good answer. Um, we're going to do finish off with some fun questions and then Sarah has a little section at the end that she loves, so we'll do that. Great. But I want to know what is one thing that each of you love about each other? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, <laughs> it's a great question. I love Michelle's sense of creativity. Like she is one of the most creative people that I know. I mean, I've never seen her draw and she certainly can't sing. But when it comes to <laughs> ideas, she kind of has stuff flying out of her brain at all hours of the day. It's quite remarkable. Like she just has ideas all all the time. And so I love being around someone that is kind of always being able to think of new things and new fun things to do. Like it's a very, it's an incredible skill and I wish I had it, but I just don't. <laughs> um, I adore Zara's brain. I think she is far smarter than I am. No. And it's funny how many times I'll throw out an opinion that is half-baked on something political <laughs> or something very important. And Zara will listen to me and then just throw back one question, which makes me go, fuck. Like, <laughs> she's so much cleverer than I am. Um, she's got a brilliant, brilliant mind. And I, I love kind of surrounding myself with people who are far more intelligent than I am because I think it rubs off on you. And so I think, yeah, she's definitely made me a better thinker. And I think being a good thinker is such an incredible quality in a human being. That's why you hang around me, isn't it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Now, what's one thing people assume about you? People assume we're not really friends. Really? Do they still, so though? Weird. I, I don't know if they still do this. I don't think they do anymore because we've said it a few times. I think for at the start people wondered what like what the nature of our relationship was behind closed doors but it's like this very enmeshed relationship I mean you guys would understand you work together so closely and it's not just work it's kind of personal but all the conversations just kind of mold into one like you'll go Mm -hmm. from talking about a work thing to a personal thing back to a work thing and it's just like all over the place no boundaries no boundaries (laughs) um I think Mish I think though that people would be surprised that like we feel 
nervous often doing our podcast and that we Mm -hmm. don't often feel completely confident in the things that we're saying because I think that we give off this, I don't know, perception that we are much surer of ourselves than we are. Yeah. Yeah, actually one thing that people have um, told me is that they are under the impression that we don't care what people think about us. Yeah. <laughs> which, sorry to shatter the illusion, I care so much what people think about me. Like, it's kind of terrifying. I want people to like me. And I feel like if you didn't give a fuck what anyone in the world thought of you, it might be a bit of a red flag that maybe you do need to check yourself because we want people to think we're genuinely kind, yeah, loving, empathetic people. So if people don't think that about me, I'm deeply troubled and I, like, will have an internal crisis about that for a long time. So that is a big one that people say, oh, well, you guys don't care what people think about you. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We care more than anyone else in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Before I get to my uh, favourite question, you were just talking about criticism. How do you guys deal with criticism? And do you get any? It's hard. Um, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think um, you get to a certain size and it's just sort of natural. Like it, it's going to come like the, the bigger your audience size, the kind of the higher the level of criticism is like, that's always going to happen. Yeah. We are much better at dealing with it now. I think <laughs> we have psychologists. Yeah, which is like, say, do you have any tips? Because I'm so bad at taking criticism. So you're um, a psychologist. My, my psychologist was like really good at teaching me to be angry and I, I think when I was ever faced with a piece of criticism, what I would do is I would kind of like internalize it and kind of yeah. let it eat me inside and I'd get really, really anxious because of it. And so what she said to me was like, I don't think you have an inability, unless you're a narcissist, I don't think you have an inability to recognize constructive criticism from really nasty criticism. So back yourself in those moments. And if a piece of criticism comes that you do think is deeply unfair and just nasty, get angry. Like don't don't get anxious about it. They're not right. Get angry at them and say like, you're not right. Like I'm right. You're wrong for saying that. And kind of rewiring my brain like that has been really, really helpful because it's given me permission to be like, nah, fuck you. You're not right. I have probably my favorite tip ever is when it comes to taking on feedback and criticism. And this was also from my psychologist. And I'm so glad she told me this because it was almost like a light bulb moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm fine. Like I can deal with this. Everything's fine. So basically I went to her and I said, look, like it's really hard in this type of job. You get a lot of negative feedback. Um, Of course there's positive feedback, but I kind of feel like Teflon when a positive piece of feedback comes, I'm like, yeah, cool. Okay, great. Thank you so much. As soon as one negative comment comes, it sticks to me and suddenly I'm like Velcro. (laughs) So I was talking to her about this and she's like, okay, she's like, I think a good exercise for you would be, tell me right now, who are your favorite authors? Like in the world, you're a big reader, you love reading books, who are your favorite writers? So I said, okay, well, I really love Sally Rooney. Like she's incredible. She's in her twenties and she's written two incredibly best-selling books, normal people and conversations with friends. And they're my, probably two of my favorite books of all time. She goes, okay, cool go home today and look up the reviews of Sally Rooney's works on Goodreads and Booktopia. I was like, okay, cool. I go home and I look on Goodreads and I just read review after review of people saying she's not as good as what everyone else is saying. She's overrated. They don't understand the hype X, Y, Z. And of course there are positive reviews, but there are increasingly as Sally Rooney's profile gets bigger, there's an increasingly loud voice that she's not as good as what people think she is. And I was reading them And I kind of came back to the next session a few weeks later and I was talking to her about it. And she's like, okay, did your opinion of Sally Rooney change? Even when you've read negative reviews of her, even when you heard that people think she's overrated and not that good and actually quite a terrible writer, did it influence your opinion? And I was like, 
no, I still love her. She's still my favourite writer. And she's like, okay, well, keep in mind that there will be people who don't like you and that's a fact of life. But it's not like they poison the well. It's not like one person has a negative opinion and that just spreads like wildfire and suddenly everyone hates you. It's bound to happen and it doesn't change anything. One person disliking you doesn't change the 100 people who really love what you do and really enjoy it every week. So I think that exercise is so great for anyone who's in a public job or anyone who does deal with negative criticism in a very personal way. Think about that and think about the people you admire and, yeah, it's just been such a helpful exercise for me. There's that quote, Mish, that we said to ourselves a while ago, which I think is just so bang on. It's like it goes something like you're never as as good or as bad as people say you are. Mm. Like you're just somewhere in that thing. So it's like I think when I kind of started to tell myself that you don't take the positive stuff as strongly, you don't take the negative stuff strongly, you just fit somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Now for my final question. Oh, yes. I'm excited for this one now. Big hype. (laughs) (laughs) I love food and I think you can tell a lot by a person, by what they eat and by their choice (laughs) in answering this question. Your dying meal Uh, (laughs) and a cocktail. You have to add the cocktail in. Yeah. Okay, wait. So we're doing just one meal plus a cocktail. No, you can choose entree, entree, main, and dessert. Fuck yes. We actually actually ask each other this question all the time. All the time. Really? Um, Um, Yeah. Entree, I think, I mean, this is so specific. (laughs) I would go the fries. I think it might be truffle fries or just fries from Entrecote, which is a restaurant in Melbourne. Their fries are incredible, and I would have that as my entree. Zara, what's your entree? My entree is, I don't even know if this counts as an entree, but I'd have like a baked camembert. Yum. Yeah, delish. Um, My main course would be, it's quite basic, bitch, but it would be a risotto (laughs) or it'd be a lamb ragu. I think I'd probably go like a pancetta risotto would be my main meal and it'd probably be homemade because I just love homemade risottos. You just won Sarah's heart. You really <laughs> Oh, well done, Michelle. My <laughs> main. Italian here. <laughs> my, oh, damn. My main, I mean, I do love a pasta, so I hope that wins your heart. <laughs> but I would say it would be easily like a slow-cooked lamb roast. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and then my dessert. Dessert. Um, um, oh, give me a warm chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, same. Oh, chocolate wow. chip cookies, you can't go past it. But I just, not a crunchy one. I'm like, I'm quite picky with regards to what I want. Mm-hmm. I don't want them cold. Yeah. I want chewy, really chocolatey. Yeah. Um, I just want it to basically fall apart. It's basically yeah. not a cookie because it falls apart. <laughs> so true. Wait, and the cocktail, oh, the cocktail, we're both going to be the exact same. Are we? We kind of unofficially made a shameless cocktail oh, because so Zara came onto the podcast three weeks ago or maybe a bit longer ago and was like, everyone needs to try this cocktail. And she's basically spread it like wildfire across <laughs> the entire city. So the Floridora cocktail. It's actually called a bloody Floridora. I love how you tried to take <laughs> bloody of Floridora this you, cocktail, you which is all in. Zara's genius because she plucked it out of obscurity and found it. And it's very good. It was a very, very yeah. good cocktail. You need four pillars gin. It's um, Shiraz gin. It's it's Shiraz gin. What else has it got? Some lime juice and ginger vermouth. beer. Yeah. Yeah. Vermouth. Yeah. That's like refreshing for summer. Sorry. Did I pause? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I pause. I was going to say, I want to go back to the cookie. That was really awkward. Um, there goes the technical difficulties on a <laughs> Um No, I want to go back to the cookie. Are you guys a dunker in milk? No. No. In tea, probably. Okay. In English I need, it, tea, not I in need to have ice cream with it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I need something kind of like, yeah. I would need a cup of tea. A cup okay. of tea would be great. Interesting. Thank you so much, guys, for sitting down with us. And just for everyone listening, where can they go to purchase right. your book? 
Oh, everywhere. All good bookstores. <laughs> if you're not <laughs> a big reader, like if you're not a huge fan of books, there's an audiobook. So if you like podcasts, we feel like it's perfect for podcast listeners. Yeah. Um, so yes, if you visit like Amazon or Audible, those kind of places, I think there's like Apple Books as well. Yeah. There's a new thing that I only just found out about. They all have the audiobook. Otherwise, all good bookstores will have the print version. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to walk into a bookstore and actually yeah. and I know. take a photo for you guys. It must <laughs> be such a weird feeling not having mm. no when people can open up and I can have a cocktail with you guys. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I'll 100%. make you a bloody Floridora. <laughs> we'll bring the cookies. <laughs> yeah. Done. Right, thank, thank you so, so much, much guys. guys. It was so nice to like meet Bye. and talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget, guys, this episode was brought to you by Banging Body. If you want to look like me or Sarah, don't forget to go to bangingbody.com and use our code CURIOUS10 at checkout. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.